Right, we're on the uh, sanctions, the sanctions. You can go to that in the binder. So what we spoke about yesterday was basically the challenges that the Prophet had in, in different areas, Mecca, Medina, we included like the munafiqeen. There's no munafiqeen in Mecca, but they showed up later on in Medina, but we're just saying all together, what were the challenges that the Prophet faced? Now, today, inshallah, we're going into uh, more specifics. They were in Mecca for 13 years, and the main message that the Prophet ﷺ was teaching in Mecca was, what was the main message? Establishing Tawheed, establishing people's Aqeedah, speaking about the Day of Judgment, speaking about Paradise and Hellfire. That was the main message for these 13 years, right? Once Medina came up, right, a lot of the other rulings started to be explained, and there's a different approach, even in the, in the verses of the Qur'an that came up in Medina, but here in Mecca, you'll see that the same message is coming again and again and again and again and again throughout these years. And about the seventh year, the mushrikeen came up with a brilliant idea. And that was because they couldn't directly harm the Prophet ﷺ because of his uncle Abu Talib. They couldn't directly harm him, like they couldn't just go and kill him or go and harm him. The tribes, would, it would kick off a war because the, one tribe wouldn't allow another tribe to do such a thing. And so they came up with this plot, and that is the sanctions. It happened in about the seventh year since prophethood. And the sanctions lasted for about three years. Lasted for about three years. Here are the things that the sanction included. And they're very critical points because at times when Muslims become kind of like, uh, what's the word? You know how like in the media where they, where they make a Muslim look like really bad? What's the word for that? What's that? Demonized. I like it. <laughs> Obviously, if you're going to harm someone, you've got to demonize them. You've got to make them seem like they're not human beings. And, and usually, when, you know, like say countries go to war with another country, they have to demonize those people like, oh, they're like rats. They're just pests. And killing them is like killing roaches. Right? And then once you've convinced the people that, then the whole country is going to go to war and they're going to do whatever you say. Until some of those people go to that country and see the little children and recognize their children just like our children. They sit with them and you know, they realize that they're just human beings. Then they come back and then the war just falls apart because they're not what the media said. They're real human beings. So understanding that, this is basically what Mecca was trying to do. They're trying to demonize the Muslims and make them like inhuman so that they could harm them as much as they wanted. So, and what I'm gonna to explain to you now is how to dehumanize a human. That's the conditions of the sanctions. Okay, so number one, no socializing. No one is allowed to talk, sit, nobody's allowed to visit them. No kindness whatsoever. So part of the sanctions, they all agreed to this. No one is allowed to you know, sit with them and talk to them. If this is the Muslim, everybody must cut them off. Okay, so then more specifically than that, no one was allowed to enter their homes. You're not allowed to visit a Muslim. And by the way, this wasn't just Muslims, this was Muslim sympathizers as well. If you were a Muslim sympathizer, you were also included in the sanctions. So it's not like they could go and visit you know, their, their non-Muslim friends who you know, were supporting the Muslims. If the non-Muslim friends were supporting the Muslims, then they would be in the sanctions as well. And that's the reason why you'll see someone like Abu Talib was under the sanctions as well. He was included in it. So they're not allowed to enter their homes. 
And the key there, if they entered their homes, when you enter a person's house, what do you see? You see their children, you see that they're a normal human being, you see that they don't have food, you see that they're starving, you see that you know, maybe seven family members are in a small area, and your heart will naturally, will naturally become soft to that. And they didn't want anybody's heart to become soft to the Muslims. So they forbade anyone from visiting the Muslims. They also forbade them from giving any gifts. Obviously, you couldn't give any food to the Muslims. And on top of that, you weren't allowed to give any gifts. And you were not allowed to buy or sell with the Muslims. No buying and selling, no gifts, no visiting. Whenever a caravan would come in, no caravan was allowed to deal with the Muslims. So this is like caravans coming from the outside, even they were cut off. No caravan was allowed to do business with the Muslims. No one was allowed to intermarry with the Muslims, which also leads to emotions being like increased. If your daughter-in-law or your son-in-law is amongst the Muslims, even if you're not Muslim, this is your family, and you're not going to stand for these type of sanctions. So though no intermarriages were allowed. No one was allowed to marry the Muslims. So basically, if you were Muslim, no one would marry you, male or female. You couldn't intermarry with anybody in the community. No intermarriages. No one was allowed to make a treaty with the Muslims after this treaty. No side contracts with the Muslims. So like the Muslims, for example, and you'll see this in the Battle of Al-Ahzab with the Prophet like multiple armies came to attack the Prophet in Mecca and Medina later on. So what the Prophet did is made side contracts with different tribes who came in that army to break up the main army. Okay, so here in the sanctions, with everybody who agreed to the sanctions, they were not allowed to make additional contracts with the Prophet ﷺ. It was forbidden for them. All right, so as you can see, this was not a joke. Even sometimes when, say, countries these days, they do economic sanctions, right? When they do economic sanctions, basically they're cutting them off. It's very tough as well, but it's economic, right? You can have this product or that product imported and so on and so forth. Internally though, inside the people's homes, they're still interacting with one another and so on and so forth. In Mecca, like they're living with these people, but now the, everybody has just completely boycotted them, them and all their sympathizers. And so they would go together and they lived these three years of sanctions. So we learn number one, that this was not a simple matter. This is huge and difficult against the Muslims. We also learn from this intermarriages. Intermarriages create, creates love amongst the people. Right? A lot of people ask about, you know, is it permissible to intermarry and stuff like that. I'm not really discussing the issue here, but I'm just saying that as time goes by, when people intermarry, you become like one in the same culture. Right? You become one in the same culture. So let's say, for example, let's say a Somali community, here's a Pakistani community, and they both live in a... Um, I was going to say, in Seattle, Washington. <laughs> no, but it's Vietnamese and, uh, and Somali. So there's a lot of S Somali sisters that come to the masjid, and the Somali brothers don't come that much. And there's a lot of Vietnamese brothers that come to the masjid, and not too many Vietnamese sisters come to the masjid. So who gets married to whom? The Vietnamese brothers are marrying Somali sisters. As time goes by, their children become Viet Somalis. <laughs> <laughs> But now those children, right, I, I, I met uh, one brother that was Fijian-Palestinian. I'm like, how did that happen, man? <laughs> but uh, 
as time goes by, you know naturally this child is not going to be racist against this culture or that culture, right? And then that, oh, they're different than us. And they're like, no, my mom is Somalian, or no, my mom is Fijian, or, or something like that, right? And then those bonds are broken, and then love starts increasing in the community, which is what in the sanctions they didn't want to have happen. All these things in the sanctions, when another time comes where Muslims are being demonized, you just look back into your Sira notes, and everything that was a condition in the sanction, you just do the opposite of that. Do the opposite of that. So buying and selling. We know, for example, uncles in the community that are very social in the community, right? They have a store, they buy and sell, and like everybody knows about Muslims because of this guy. The buying and selling. There's also uncles and aunties that go and visit like the non-Muslims. They're always inviting non-Muslims to their house and they're going to visit. Do you guys know people like that? It's not too often, but there are people like that. Like say for example, I, I know one person in America who had a lot of like Hispanic workers. And every time he'd have like an iftar or a dinner at his house, he would always invite them, right? There'd be four or five of them, he'd like 10 of them. He's like, come over to my house. And, and he'd bring them over to the house. And they're there, we're sitting with the Muslims, the sheikhs, they were talking. And there's all these like non-Muslim Hispanic people. It's like, yeah, they're, they're employees for me and stuff like that. I invite them whenever I have dinner. He, it's very open for him to invite non-Muslims to his house. But you can imagine how powerful his dawah is, as opposed to most of us just you know, close our doors. We don't even invite Muslims to our house. <laughs> Economically, in the buying and selling, a lot of Muslims, they might not even have jobs, right? In the buying and selling. Now, they're cutting them off through the buying and selling, meaning that Muslims need to go out there and create those buying and selling bonds with the people buying and selling bonds. During the sanctions, to give you some glimpses, in the Sira it explains like how difficult the sanctions were on the Muslims, that times would come where they would have no food to eat. So it was described that one of the, um, one of the Muslims would go out to urinate. And then while he's urinating, the sound of the urine hitting the sand would change. So he would brush away the area and he would find a piece of like uh, leather, like a piece of animal skin. He would take the animal skin, he would clean it, he would like roast the animal skin and he would eat it. And that would last him for three days because they had nothing else to eat. And in Mecca, if a person came, now you have little children, when little children don't have food, what happens to them? Right, you can't stop them from crying. You know, like a mother will say, for example, oh, you know, the baby is hungry. Oh, like, you know, some, a baby's crying, you're trying to stop it from crying. Oh, you can't stop it from crying because it's hungry. You know, inshallah, we'll get food right now and so on and so forth. The babies, their babies had no food. And so Ahli Mecca, and they just had to pretend that they didn't hear in this valley where the Muslims were, all the babies crying like that. So you could hear all these babies crying throughout the nights and the parents have no food to give to the children. Abu Talib was there like I said, and even though he wasn't Muslim, he was still there side by side with the Prophet ﷺ. In fact, with his own children, when the Prophet ﷺ, during the night, for fear that someone would come and kill the Prophet ﷺ during the night, he would switch beds with the Prophet ﷺ with one of his sons in order to protect the Prophet ﷺ. Which is another lesson that you learn there, that non-Muslims, it's not just one blanket statement about the non-Muslims. Okay, so someone will say non-Muslims are X, Y, Z, or non-Muslims this and that. They're not at the same level, and it would be wrong for you to treat them at the same level. 
because there are non-Muslims who will be very supportive of you. And there are non-Muslims who will be indifferent to you. And there will be non-Muslims who will be very aggressive against you. But they're not going to be at the same level. Right? So just saying like, oh, because so-and-so is you know, um, this, then you know, they must completely be bad, which is not the case. The sanctions, after they had written it, they posted it on the Kaaba. They posted it on the Kaaba. So they didn't have to give like, sanctity to what they wrote and what they agreed upon so that nobody would break it. They posted it on the Kaaba and everybody just kind of like, you know, kept quiet. You know, the injustice that was happening and everybody just, you know, there weren't like courageous people to stand up and say, you know, this is wrong and so on and so forth. It was agreed upon and subhanAllah, like you have Abu Jahl involved in this and Abu Lahab and so on. What's really amazing about the sanctions, okay, it lasted like three years and how the Muslims broke the sanctions. It's just really amazing how they did it. And it's very beneficial to learn this now because you're at times where things like this happen, right? People are on, uh, Muslims, they just go on, on some TV show, right? I'm not gonna mention any shows. You know better than I do. And Muslims get demonized. How do you combat that? And learning from the sanctions, how they fought the sanctions is really beautiful. One of the, the key reasons that they were able to break the sanctions was through the arts and entertainment. <laughs> arts and entertainment. You know like those nasheed artists that everybody's dissing and stuff like that? Abu Talib wrote some poetry about the situation, about the situation of the, uh, of the Muslims, of the situa situation of Banu Hashim, what, the, what they were going through in the sanctions. And even Ibn Kathir, rahimahullah, they, they're commenting, there were these seven poems that were known amongst the Arab, uh, Arabs as the best poems ever. They're like al-mu'allaqat. Al-mu'allaqat means the things that were like hung up. They were hung up at the Kaaba. When there was a really great, poet, really great poetry, they would hang it up in the Kaaba. These uh, seven poems, Ibn Kathir rahimahullah, and they're commenting on Abu Talib's poem that he wrote about the Prophet ﷺ during the sanctions. They said, wallahi, it's better than those mu'allaqat. And that's like confirmed that it's better than the ma'alaqat. That's how amazing the poetry that Abu Talib wrote. If someone read that poetry of Abu Talib, they would like naturally their heart would melt and their heart would be attached to the Muslims. And he would start saying it and start carrying around. So basically, just kind of like, so you understand, it's like a song that becomes number one on the charts at a time when your country is at war and the song is against the war. And everybody starts singing the song. And you say, no, it's not a song, it's a qasida or it's a knot or something like that. And it was Abu Talib who wrote it as well, right? It was Abu Talib that wrote it. From the seerah, we know that the sanctions, how many people do you think it took to break the sanctions? How many people do you think it took? A sanction that's been going on for like three years, looks like there's no end, the Muslims are going to die from the sanctions. Yes, basically three people, three people. You start off with two and three. Altogether, the people who broke the sanctions were five people. Altogether, they were five people. And so these sanctions, one of the uh, amazing lessons that you learn from it as well, whenever there's something like you see in the community that you want to change, you might say, oh, we don't have enough people or this and that. And you sit and complain. You go for dinner and everybody's like, blah, 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 the problems of the Umar, this, this and that. How many people do you need to make a change? You need like two people, but People who are just focused on, well, what are we going to do about it? Versus what's wrong? <laughs> what's wrong, you know, 
till the morning time you can talk about that. I, I always mention this to Muslims, if you want to kick off a discussion that's like never going to end amongst Muslims, you would talk about marriage, right? Or you'll talk about jinns. And even if you know it's the end of the day, it's 7 o'clock at night, everybody wants to go home, and then you start talking about jinns, everybody will stay. And your father's waiting outside, just hold on, they text message him, I'll be, you know, I can't leave right now. There's a third topic that if you're sitting quietly with someone and you know, nobody's talking and stuff like that, you just, you just say to them this question, so what do you think um, is the reason for the state of the Muslims today? What do you think is like the key reason? And you won't be able to keep them quiet. They'll just keep talking, talking. But it's interesting because I started doing this to a lot of people. Everybody's got a different answer. Everybody's got a different answer. And so instead of talking like that, you would say something like this. How can we change the situation of the Ummah today? How can you and I, just me and you, change the situation of the Ummah today? It's a different question, because it's a question that requires action. And usually people, they'll go back to what is the problem, and I'm like, forget the problem, <laughs> what it is. We talk about it too much. How do we make a change to it? How do you change it? And then your mind will start to think, well, in order to change it, we need to find people that were, have successfully changed it, or other people that don't have problems like this. What did they do to not have problems like this? You start going through a whole list. Let's say, for example, you're in a Muslim country, and they smoke inside public places, right? And then you might go to a country that used to have that, but as time went by, they were able to change it. So you'd sit with this person and say, well, how did they do it? And the other person will say, well, I don't know. How could you find out? And like go to the library, go to the bookstores, and find you know, the anti-smoking campaign in buildings in Canada. And, and it worked. And someone has detailed how it happened and you know, the history of it. And then khalas, you start taking it, implementing it. One person's a manager, one person's a visionary, one person's an employee. And alhamdulillah, you're moving forward. The five people who broke the sanctions, these are their names. And again, the cool thing about this is, well, they weren't Muslims. They weren't Muslims either. You had number one, Hisham ibn Amr. Hisham ibn Amr was number one. Number two was Zuhair ibn Abi Umayyah. Zuhair ibn Abi Umayyah. Number three, Al-Mut'im ibn Adi. Al-Mut'im ibn Adi. So Hisham ibn Amr, Zuhair ibn Abi Umayyah, Al-Mut'im ibn Adi, the fourth person was Abu al-Bukhtari ibn Hisham. Abu al-Bukhtari ibn Hisham. Fifth one was Zam'a ibn al-Aswad. Zam'a ibn al-Aswad. So again, last run, last run. Hisham ibn Amr, Zuhair ibn Abi Umayyah, Al-Mut'im ibn Adi, Abu al-Bukhtari ibn Hisham, Zam'a ibn al-Aswad. All right, so you had Hisham and Zuhair. Hisham says, says to Zuhair, you know, they're sitting together one day alone, and he says to him that, you know, how can we stay in this state? You know, how can we eat? How can we allow our children to be fed when Banu Hashim, this is the situation with them. And then Zuhair agrees with him, but he says, what can we do? You know, we're only like two people. And then he said, we'll need a third person. So then they go to Al-Mut'im ibn Adi. They say, like, how can we eat and how can our children, you know, be fed when the children of Banu Hashim, they're in their valley, our own, like, relatives, and they're in this situation. And he said, what can we do? We're only, like, three people. He said, we'll need a fourth person. 
So they went, they went to Abu al-Bukhtari ibn Hisham. They said the same thing. He said, what can we do? We're only four people. We need a fifth person. Once they got Zama ibn al-Aswad, they were like, that's all we need to change the sanctions. So what they did as Quraysh was gathered together at the Kaaba one day, the first one kicks off, right? Hisham ibn Amr, he, says, he stands up and he said, how can we eat when you know, our own relatives, Ben Hashim, there are, you know, their children are going hungry and so on. And he says, I think we should end the sanctions. Who agrees with me on this? And then immediately Zuhair stands up. He's like, I agree with you. I think we should end these sanctions. He's like, Who agrees with me? And then Al-Mutram ibn Adi stands up and he's like, I completely, how can we eat, our children be fed, and yet Banu Hashim, who agrees with me on this? And then Abu al-Bukhtari stands up and he said, I totally agree with this situation. And as you can see, like Abu Jahl is sitting watching this and it's all falling in his hands because it was like executed perfectly. One after the other after the other creates the illusion of unity. It makes everybody think that this is the opinion of all of Quraysh. And Abu Jahl not prepared for that. He's not prepared for someone to come organized in their argument. It fell in his hands. And he wasn't able to stop it. And so the sanctions came to an end. And when they went, this is when the miracles, when they went to open the sanctions and look at it inside the Kaaba, they had seen that the sanctions, the paper that had the sanctions, all of it was eaten by white ants. It was completely eaten. And the only part that was left was Bismillah in the name of Allah. That's the only thing that was left. You know, whenever someone comes to me, there's this like cliche statement that, you know, lay people will say. They'll say, if only the Muslims will unite. Usually I respond to that person and I say, understanding what just happened in the sanctions, did all of Quraysh need to unite to break the sanctions? How many people needed to unite? In this case, five people. And believe me, I would assume when there are economic sanctions, even till today, my guess is it only takes like two people to break the sanctions. Obviously key people, but it doesn't take that many people to break it. It's not like a whole country has to gather together in order to stop like, sanctions like this. It just takes some you know, intelligent people that are committed all the way till the end to do something like this. So if someone said to you, if only the Muslims will unite, I would say in response, what if 80% of the Muslims unite? Would Allah give us victory? And then if you think about it, like, yeah, yeah, he'd give us. <laughs> And then I'd bring it down, what if, what if 60% of the Muslims united? Would victory be for the Muslims? It's like, yeah, yeah, 60%. Like, what if 40% of the Muslims united? Would victory be for the Muslims? Yes, it would. <laughs> break it down, my guess is, even if it was 20%, if it, would you agree with me? How many people think if 20% of the Muslims united, there would be victory? Okay, so that's why I say it's just a layperson saying if only the Muslims will unite. And I would say even 20%, 20% is like 200 million Muslims, right, unified. That's an awesome organization right there. <laughs> 200 is probably more than that too. And so next time someone says to you, if only the Muslims unite, you'd say to them, if only 20% of the Muslims united, if only 20% or less than that. We make things like so big, but in reality, it's very simple things. Only it just takes some intelligence to do it, inshallah ta'ala. Some other lessons that we learned from the sanctions. We mentioned the use of arts, right? I said arts and entertainment to combat the tyranny. And I would say that at the times we're living in right now, let's say, for example, someone was imprisoned unjustly. 
imprisoned unjustly, my suggestion in a case like that would be to use the arts to influence the culture about this person. So if someone like wrote, a so someone's in prison and he wrote a song about his, his imprisonment, sent it to like his sister and his sister put it up on YouTube. Everybody's following the story and then it gets picked up by the media. And you get like one million people getting the human side of this person rather than what the media is telling them, right? In the olden days, you would have to go to a big broadcast or TV station to get something like this played. But now, you can get more people viewing something online than actually on TV. And on the TV, if a lot of people are viewing it online, they will have to bring it on TV so that they don't look like they're being kept in the dark. They'll say, oh, a recent YouTube video by you know, so-and-so who's in prison. You know, and then they'll start playing his song, and it's giving his side of the story uh, and such. You also see in the sanctions, you had non-Muslims, key non-Muslims, Abu Talib, you had the people who broke the sanctions. They were not Muslim. And we said that if you have, for example, sincere activists, right? There are many different organizations out there. They're not Muslim, but they're sincere in what they're doing in standing up for justice. I gave the example yesterday that how at, you know, at these rallies that we have for Muslims and Muslim issues, you will always have non-Muslims standing there. And I said, I wish if we can learn this lesson, inshallah ta'ala, after the, the times that we're in, maybe we'll learn the lesson to also attend those things when it deals with other non-Muslims. When there is an injustice, we defend it no matter who it is, because it's an, an injustice that has happened. And there's nothing wrong with working with sincere activists like that. You'll also see in the sanctions that Abu Lahab, you have like Abu Lahab, you have Abu Jahl, you have people who are from the family of the Prophet who are hurting the Prophet So for example, in Hajj time, in these years, the Prophet would go from tribe to tribe telling them to say La ilaha illallah and that they would be successful. So the people would ask though, who is this man? He's like, he's claiming to be a prophet. Who is this person behind him who keeps shouting at him, cursing him in front of everybody? And they'll say, that's his uncle, Abu Lahab. So sometimes you might be doing da'wah and you might be doing something good and the person that's harming you the most is a family relative. A family relative is the person that's hurting you. So it's like, if only the family relative just leave me alone, look, we're, you know, we're related. But no, they insist on making your life a living hell. You'll see also in the sanctions that the Muslims, Banu Hashim, Muslims and the non-Muslims are involved in that, the amount of patience that they would need for those three years and what kind of growth they would have, right? Because as each stage of the seerah, it gets more difficult and more difficult as the years go by. So one test has passed, and then another test comes in that's stronger than that. Another test comes to that. So you'll see actually in Mecca, right, at first they're verbally abusing the Prophet And then they'll put this harm where it's like physical in the sanctions, where like they, they're not just physically harming him, like with their swords or something like that. They couldn't do that. But the Prophet would go to sleep in fear of being killed. And now the family is in fear. Imagine every time you went to sleep at night, sometimes you already fear this, right? When you go to sleep at night, you're afraid someone's in the backyard, you close the curtains, you're scared and stuff like that. Imagine if that fear was a reality, that at any moment there could be someone lurking in the darkness ready to kill you every time you went to sleep. And how would you sleep in such a case? And then as it went to the years of Mecca, they actually came to the end where they said that the only solution was to kill the Prophet And that was at the time of Hijrah, they had come to assassinate the Prophet 
And then in Medina, then came the Battle of Badr, the Battle of Uhud, and so on and so forth. The tests intensified. So in these three years, the Muslims learned, like, so if you go through a huge test, right, and you're patient to that. Remember we were talking about, like, the patient circle? Your heart gets, like, so big. If you suffer any hunger, you'll be like, you know what? This is okay because I went through, like, three years of hunger. And this is like, you know, maybe we don't have food for, like, a day or two. It's like, no problem. Food, hunger, the hunger from the food, and you have the fear issue. Every night you're going to sleep as if someone's going to kill you tonight, which is a, a possibility. And so you begin to live with that fear and you learn to deal with it so that you don't have that fear. In these three years, you'll see the patience of the companions of the Prophet ﷺ, the Muslims, the patience that they'd have, they would have to build up because they were not allowed to fight back. So they didn't just grab swords and say, hey, you know what, we've had it with these sanctions, we're going to go kill some people in, in Mecca. This is not what they did. They held back and didn't fight back. Also, throughout these years, like you say, for example, if you've ever seen this uh, happen, someone goes to jail unjustly, they've gone to jail, or maybe you know, they went to some Muslim country, and some Muslim country, in accordance with some non-Muslim country, took this guy from the airport and tortured him for about a year or two. This happens in our daily... Uh... This person, after he comes out, when you see him, you would think he would be like, just like destroyed and, and you know, emotionally scarred and all of these things and so on and so forth, right? That's what you would think would happen. However, when he comes out and you see him, he's actually in a stronger state than you are. How many people have ever seen that before? Okay, They're in a stronger state than you are. Why are they stronger than you? They're stronger than you because they went through a test and because of their patience to Allah, the test made them stronger. You, on the other hand, weren't tested with that. So you haven't challenged, you haven't gotten your emotions to a point where you could accept a situation like this. Right? So they're actually stronger than you. So now understanding that the Muslims in the sanctions, after all these years of being patient, they are extremely strong in their emotions. And extremely patient for whatever is going to happen. And so all these years building them up to carry the message of Islam. In fact, one of the Muslims in Mecca, he came to the Prophet I believe it was Khabbab anhu, after being tortured. He, was, he had just been tortured. He came from a torture session. And he was angry. And he went to the Prophet and he said, He said, why don't you make dua for us? Why don't you like, ask assistance from Allah for us? And the Prophet ﷺ got angry. Now imagine that his companion was just tortured. And the Prophet ﷺ is not getting angry at that, but it's the situation, it's that lack of patience, the not understanding that this is, part of the, this is part of the path that one has to take. And the Prophet ﷺ, he sat up and he said, Verily the people that came before us, in their torture, they would have their skin ripped away from, their, from the meat with combs of iron. And they would be buried in the sand, and they would be cut from like, all cut in two pieces. He said, but rather that would never cause them to leave their faith. But rather you are hasty. Rather you are hasty. And so these are lessons for the companions of Allah They would be patient during these times, and a time would come when victory would come to the Muslims.
there were amongst the companions, those who were in the torture, that they would not see the time when that victory would come. And people like that were like Ammar anhu's parents. His parents, Sumayya, his mother Sumayya and his father Ammar, uh, sorry, his father Yasir. And the Prophet would pass them while they're in the midst of their torture. They're being tortured and the Muslims are standing there watching and they can't like just start a fight. The Prophet would pass that in their torture and he would tell them to be patient. So the Prophet would say to them, Sabran ala Yasir, fa inna So the Prophet said to them, Patience, O family of Yasir, because you have appointment in paradise. Now you notice even in the statement of the Prophet, he didn't say that, you know, be patient because you know we're going to Medina in a few years or so on. They wouldn't be alive till then. And in their torture they were killed. And so you had Ammar, his father, yes, or his mother, Sumayya, and both his father and mother were killed in their torture. That their torture went all the way till death. And they were, they were shaheed. And so that was their victory for them. And then you had people like Bilal radiallahu anhu. Bilal radiallahu anhu, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you see like Abu Lahab. Abu Lahab was the uncle of the Prophet and every Muslim hates him for the sake of Allah. Every Muslim hates him for the sake of Allah. Remember, you know, even when my, my daughter reads Surah Lahab. Tabbat yada Abi Lahabin wa tab. Ma aghna anhu maluhu wa ma kasab. You know, she had recorded it all my answering machine. And I thought, subhanAllah, here's my three-year-old daughter. And she's saying that Abu Lahab is cursed. He's in hellfire. <laughs> and I thought, what a humiliation. Like, you're talking 1,400 years later, and he's still being humiliated. Like throughout, he's humiliated. And so his relationship to the Prophet didn't avail him because he chose not to believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then you have people like Bilal radiallahu anhu that every Muslim loves. Every Muslim loves. In fact, you know, when it comes to the companions of the Prophet Muslims in general don't know too many companions. But Bilal radiallahu anhu is one of the top companions that every Muslim knows. Masjid Bilal. Do you guys have a Masjid Bilal here? I know you have to have Masjid Bilal, right? I don't even know, but you've got to have it. Masjid Bilal, other companions that the Muslims know very well is Abu Huraira, radiallahu anhu, right? And of course, the Khulafa. Bilal, radiallahu anhu, I'll just tell you this side story that happened to me in Mecca. Bilal, radiallahu anhu, is very dark-skinned, very dark-skinned. And I was at the Kaaba once, and you know, when, when I first went to Mecca, you know, like many years ago, and one brother said, you know what, when you're at the Kaaba, you can pray like in the front row of the world. And I said, wow, that's so cool. I'm going to go pray in the front row of the world. So I went, you know, maybe an hour before Salah, and I'm waiting there for the Adhan and so on and so forth. When the time for the Adhan comes, this, um, this Saudi brother, is very dark-skinned, comes out with the microphone, right? His clothes are very clean, and he's very dark-skinned, and he comes out with the microphone and places it down. It looks like he's going to say the Adhan. He wasn't the Mu'addin. Usually, you know where the Mu'addins are from? They're from Uzbekistan. <laughs> Bukhari. Not all of them, though. <laughs> In Medina, they are. So he brought out the microphone, and it looked like he was going to say the Adhan. And so there were some South Africans. Any South Africans here? South Africa? Okay. South Africans were, were sitting beside me. And when they saw this brother come out with the microphone, they freaked out. They were so happy. <laughs> They were so, why were they so happy? Because he was dark-skinned. 
And I heard them like so, you know, jittering and bubbling amongst themselves, and, and they were like, Wo Blas family hey. <laughs> Which means, for those who don't understand, they're saying, you know, because he looks like he's going to say the Adhan. They were so happy that a dark-skinned man would say the Adhan because they would say he's from the family of Bilal radiallahu anhu. This was their happiness and joy. And he didn't say the Adhan, actually, just bring the microphone. <laughs> Bilal radiallahu anhu believed in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and then of those who were tortured the most was Bilal radiallahu anhu. In fact, later in Medina, Bilal radiallahu anhu, they'd be sitting amongst the companions, the Ansar, and they would, you know, when they see the back of Bilal, and they've been tortured before, they've seen it, you know, they would be shocked at, at the scars of Bilal, it's like all of his skin burnt off from his back. And they would say to him, how could you survive torture like that? These are like the companions that have been through all their battles and so on. And actually what's interesting, in the battle of Badr, the battle of Badr, his slave master used to torture him, Umayyah, came to the battle of Badr, and they caught him in the battle of Badr, and you know, one of the companions had him captured as a prisoner, he's like, no, you can't kill him, he's my prisoner. Then Bilal who went to the Ansar, and he said, remember the stories of me being tortured in Mecca? This is the guy. <laughs> And all the Ansar, they've never seen Umayyah before, but they know what he did to Bilal. And so they're like, we're going to kill him, we don't care if he's your prisoner. And, they, you know, and, and this, you know, this companion got on top of Umayyah and said, no, you're prisoner, I'll defend you. And then from underneath him, they took their spears and they killed Umayyah from underneath that companion who was on top of him. So, Bilal radiallahu anhu, in his torture, and you look at you know, the strength of Bilal radiallahu anhu. They were saying to him that you know, because he's a slave, how dare he believe. You know, they would say that the slaves, they don't have brains to think. So Bilal radiallahu anhu believed in the Prophet sallallahu And he would be tortured. Bilal radiallahu anhu used to say, Ahadun ahad. Ahadun ahad. And subhanAllah, anybody who is tortured today, they have the best example in Bilal radiallahu anhu. So much so that I've heard, even in Muslim countries where they're torturing Muslims, that anybody who's in the prison being tortured, they're always saying ahadun ahad during the torture. And even sometimes the people who are torturing them are Muslim, <laughs> right? And, and they're like, who do you think you are, Bilal? Like while they're, while they're beating the guy. And then they're saying to, back to the person who's like torturing Bilal, like, who do you think you are, Abu Jahl? <laughs> Going around torturing Muslims and stuff. And Bilal radiallahu anhu used to say ahadun ahad. Why would he say ahadun ahad? Ahad means like uh, he's only one, he's only one. There's multiple things that Bilal radiallahu anhu could have said. He could have said like la ilaha illallah, he could have said anything. And so they asked Bilal radiallahu anhu, why, would you, why did you say ahadun ahad? And he said that he actually tested, he was like doing tests on them. He's, he would say different things. And he said, I found the, the statement that provoked them the most, that made them the most angry, i.e. the one that would cause them to torture him the most, was when he said, Ahadun Ahad. And he said, that's why I said it. And I thought, SubhanAllah, Bilal was torturing them. The torture was in opposite, they couldn't handle it. In fact, SubhanAllah, when you see, like Sumayya, and why would they take them all the way to death in their torture? Because the person who is doing the torture is being tortured. They can't handle it, they've lost control, and they would, they would kill the person. Ta'ala anhu. During the sanctions, you'll see that 
the situation the Muslims became like a testimony and it, it started being broadcasted to other tribes. And so one of the benefits that they got from that is as the Muslims were being in these sanctions, everybody was hearing of what they were doing to the Muslims. So the sympathy of other tribes was being increased for the Muslims. If they had kicked off a battle inside Mecca, then it could have easily be said, oh, there's these terrorists in the city, they're going around killing their own family members and so on and so forth. There's many different things you could learn from how fighting back would be the wrong option. And in fact, a lot of the people that they would have fought and they would have killed later became Muslim. And they say also that's one of the hikmah Allah knows best, these people would later become Muslim. So it's not that as soon as you, you, know, you just became Muslim, now you want to start fighting with everybody. How easily can a sanctions like this be kicked off against Muslim? How easily can it be kicked off? I think within 24 hours, a sanctions of this nature can be kicked off against the Muslims. Do you agree with me on that? It can be kicked off. Muslims can be demonized immediately. And I think everything is being prepared for that. Right? And so definitely a Muslim needs to prepare. They need to build up their arts. They need to build up their connections. They need to build up their intermarriages. They need to build up all of these things so that stuff like that can happen at will. And like I said, within 24 hours, something like that could take place. I won't explain to you how it can happen so that nobody tries and attempts it. But it can happen very quickly. All right? Inshallah, I'll give you a break. What's that? A 10-minute break, Inshallah.